You take your Bible this morning and turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to spend some time this Advent season, and, and we'll get to chapter 2. Um, Luke's birth narrative is far more robust, and so as we enter into the Advent season, I think it's good for us to take a look at all the things that, that Luke records prior to Jesus' birth and to take away several things from there. We've been in John's Gospel, so if you're familiar with John's Gospel is in your Bible, just turn, turn back one book and you will find the gospel of Luke and and we'll begin there in chapter one. I'm grateful uh, for uh, the men of Buffalo City Church, uh, men like John Bumgardner who this morning is preaching in Valley City, who gives us opportunities to proclaim the gospel not only in our own community but in communities that are adjacent to us. Next week, Kaylin Heller is going to be preaching in in North Mar- at North Marion Reform Church, um, and there are other churches in our region who are proclaiming the gospel, putting a high premium on the proclamation of God's word uh, in their communities. You think of our Acts 29 candidate church just down the road in, in Bismarck, Chris Wallace there, um, who is who is a part of that church and um, or who had, who planted that church and uh, Paige and Brandon Bodley, if you remember them, they're part of that congregation. What a joy it is to send people out uh, to new church plants, to new expressions of the local church in in our areas areas around us. And I, I want to impress upon you to be praying also for for Stefano and Jenny, uh, who are church planters in Budrio, Italy, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. They worshiped earlier today. It's well into their afternoon. He's probably well into his nap at this point. Um, but uh, would you be praying for them too as we enter this Advent Advent season? And then for churches in our own community, churches like, for churches like First Naz, just south of us, a, a few blocks, uh, Pastors Jim and Greg there, would you pray for them this week? This week as well, we have much to be grateful for and many opportunities to to uh, to to cheer on gospel proclamation in our in our state, in our town, and across across the globe. That's one reason this morning that I'm grateful. So as we enter into our Advent season this morning, um, I uh, I'm excited to break off a few passages out of Luke Luke's gospel, beginning in chapter one. I'm gonna read this morning a relatively large chunk of text. I'm going to start in verse 5, and I'm going to read through verse 25. Then we're going to turn the page, and we're going to go to verse 57 and read through verse 66. So if you've got this in front of you, uh, would you read along um, in your mind with me? In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense. At the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing right, right on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, 
And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that, the things, that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hiding, hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked and when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now go ahead and skip, turn the page if you need to, and skip down to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. And they said to him, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he answered, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing. He spoke blessing God. And fear came out on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. You all know the lyrics to Joy to the World. Uh, the, uh, the, the first verse is probably the most popular, and you can probably recite that pretty easily right now. Um, but when we get to the third verse, the third verse actually oftentimes gets left out, um, but it's one of the most powerful verses in the song. There's only four verses, maybe more, but I think that there's four. Uh, and the third verse gets left out, so maybe you're not familiar with it, but, but it goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. I know you, I'm not. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. These lyrics in Joy to the World are designed to uh, point us back, to bring us back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis chapter 3. They're designed to show us the origination of the curse that Jesus came to reverse. When sin entered the world as a result of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and when God speaks to Adam in the Garden in Genesis 3, he says, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it in the day, all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So as we enter into Advent this year, I want you to think and to remember that Jesus Christ came into the world as a, as a child, was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary. Um, he came into the world to eradicate the curse of sin. This curse, or part, this is part of the curse here in Genesis 3, um, the, the curse of sin, Jesus Christ came into the world to eradicate this curse. And uh, like joy to the world says, to cause blessings to flow as far as the curse is found. Sin, we need to have a good grasp on sin to have a good understanding of why this curse is enacted in Genesis 3. Because sin is is disobedience to what God has told us. By his word, what has God told us? And if we disobey what God has said to us, there is our direct consequences. Like for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned when they ate of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God told them not to eat. And we sin when we actively disobey God's law or when we simply fail to do what he tells us to do. We call sins of Commission, where we actively act out and uh, sin against God, and sins of omission, where we know what we ought to do, but we fail to do it. Sin isn't just the bad things we do, though, and this is part of the reality of the world that we live in. Sin isn't just the bad stuff we do. Like you can make a list like, oh, I said a bad word. And then it's not just the list of things. Sin is pervasive. It exists as part of our nature. Paul says it in Romans 5.19. The whole verse goes like this. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the one man's disobedience he's talking about is Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. And the one man's obedience that he talks about in the second half of that verse is Jesus Christ. His perfect life he lived completely in accordance with God's word while he was here on earth. But the premise of this, or or a fundamental principle that's contained in this verse, is that through Adam's disobedience, we are born into sin. The Bible is clear. We are sinners then by nature and we actively choose sin. That is a miserable state to be in. So the curse then, the curse is all-consuming. It's pervasive. It's everywhere, including in us. And it's evidenced in our actions. But Jesus Christ came into the world to to pay the infinite debt of sin that we owe and to change us, change our nature, and turn us into those new creations that the Bible talks about. Jesus came into the world then to reverse the curse of Genesis 3 um, and, and 
is actively doing that right now as well as we sit here. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus on the cross uh, fulfills his mission. He dies for the sins of the world. And, and then from that point forward is actively reversing the curse of sin that we see laid out in Genesis 3 in our world now. And so, as Christians, um, when, we, when we trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, um, when we repent of our sin, when we turn and go the other way from our sin, um, we are joined, we are united with the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God. Because Jesus never sinned, but He suffered and died in your place and in my place as if He did, but He never did. Can you, can you think about, I'm, I'm going to pains to express this sin, the, the, the nature of sin for us, because the curse is being reversed. Can you think about all of the times that you've sinned in your life? And of course you can't. Of course you can't. Can you, can you remember all of the times that you failed to honor your father and mother when you were two years old, just in like a one-week stretch? No, of course not. Of course not. Husbands, can you... Remember and recount all of the times that you failed to love your wife as Christ loved the church throughout the course of your marriage. If you've been married for more than five minutes, then, then the answer is no. Uh, on the top of that, we're always discovering, the Holy Spirit is always, as Christians, revealing to us new pockets of, of uh, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, anger, etc., and if you saw it all laid out before you, you'd be so overwhelmed. You would be so overwhelmed by the radical and pervasive, all-consuming debt of sin that you owe. Now, we could, if we could even think about that for ourselves, that's not even to begin to think about the 107 estimated 107 billion people who have ever lived on planet Earth. Friends, I have good news for you. Jesus' sacrifice is effective for all of it. It has the ability to take away that sin as far as the curse is found. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is effective. One sin, it's sufficient for one sin which is enough to rack up an infinite debt with a holy God. One lustful thought, one moment of unforgiveness, one dishonoring remark towards another person. Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for the heaps and heaps of sin that you and I commit. The radical the radical depravity inside of us. And for all of the people in the world who ever lived, Jesus' payment is sufficient. And where sin is paid for, the curse diminishes. Remember what God commands Adam and Eve before sin enters the world back in Genesis 1, verse 28. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. 
But that, that, the curse of sin makes that command radically more difficult. Because the curse for the woman, pain in childbirth. Thorns and thistles come up from the ground instead of what the man plants there. The fruit of the womb and the fruit of the ground become painful because of the curse of sin. And that sin that resides in us, that is part of our nature, leads to spiritual unfruitfulness also. Jesus says in the New Testament that we know trees by their, their fruit. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes. Figs aren't gathered from thistles. Jesus says those words and uses those examples to, to plant our, our thinking back into Genesis chapter 3. The command for us as Christians is to be fruitful and multiply, both by our work in the world, by having children, but, but also by bearing spiritual fruit, like what Paul describes in Galatians in the fruit of the Spirit. All of this is only possible where the curse is actively being reversed. And we see a glimpse of that in our text this morning. So I want you to latch on to this idea this morning and keep it on your mind as you celebrate the Christmas season, as you enter into uh, Advent as an individual and as a family. Jesus came into the world to reverse the curse of sin so that we might bear fruit and give glory to His name. Jesus came into the world to reverse the curse of sin so that we might bear fruit and give glory to His name. So fast forward from Adam and Eve. We talked about Adam and Eve a lot. Fast forward to Zechariah and Elizabeth. These this, these two characters that we meet here at the beginning of Luke's gospel, the parents of John the Baptist. There are three things here that I want you to see in, uh, in their lives as described by the gospel writer Luke here. Three things. First, a lifetime of holy living. Second, a moment of unbelief. And then finally, lastly, a glimpse of the great reversal. So. We'll take those each as we walk through this passage. We're not going to be able to hit everything because this is a lot of verses, but, but I'm going to give you a handful of thoughts as we look at the text. So first, a lifetime of holy living. Faithful Christians oftentimes are misunderstood by the world. Faithful Christian living is often misunderstood by the world. Look at verse 6. Second verse we read. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is holiness. Zechariah and Elizabeth, their living was marked by obedience to God. Their living was set apart living. But there was one problem that we learn about in verse 7. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they both were advanced in years. Now, I made that statement, faithful Christian living is often misunderstood by the world because of the way that Elizabeth would have been viewed now in their culture. Because she was childless, she would have been viewed in first century Judaism it would have been likely that it would have been assumed that Elizabeth was barren because of her own personal sin. Now, verse 6 is, indicates to us that that's not the case. 
Because Luke goes to great pains to say that they were righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth lived lives of holiness. Elizabeth lived a life of holiness. Elizabeth's barrenness wasn't because of the was not because of her personal sin, which is what we learn here, but because of the curse of sin that touched her womb. It was the pain that came in childbearing was took on this form for her. It took on the form of unable an inability to have children. And because the assumption that would have been made in the culture at large because this was a result of her direct sin, she no doubt had to endure being the subject of gossip, a lot of painful gossip as a younger woman. But the way that Luke outlines this for us is that God is not punishing Zechariah and Elizabeth. God is not punishing them for their sin, even though the culture may have thought God was punishing them. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't perfect people, but they were righteous. They walked in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They weren't victims, but they were in fact affected by the curse of sin here. Here we are meant to see that God brings fruit through lives of holiness. God brings fruit through lives of holiness. Children are a blessing from the Lord. The, the, the Old Testament is clear about this. And the fruit of Christian marriage is children. The fruit of Christian marriage should look like children and should look like lots of children. The Christian home ought to be overflowing with children. Somewhere we bought into the lie that kids are an inconvenience, but kids aren't. The Bible is very clear. Children are a blessing from the Lord. They're not a problem to be solved. I'm so grateful that God has so many young families at Buffalo City Church. When it's not a holiday weekend, this place is exploding with children. I love it. What a blessing that is. We can't, as people, as Christians, buy into the lie that the next step in our life process is to, uh, is to, um, is to get a bachelor's degree and then somewhere in between there have some kids and then advance in our career. Children are not designed to be another step in life process. The Christian home is meant to be a hub of worship, a little community of discipleship set apart from the world that declare the glory of God. Sometimes, the fruit of Christian marriage is children. Sometimes, the reality of the world we live in, still still touched by the curse of sin, means that couples are unable to have children just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Sometimes Christian couples suffer miscarriages or sometimes dramatically limited by medical problems. Grace of God doesn't know limits. God gives us overflowing grace in taking lives like Zechariah and Elizabeth, like you and me, and setting us apart in bringing fruit out of them. Even where physical childbearing is an impossibility. God gives us the ability to bear spiritual fruit over and over and over again throughout our our lives. Building 
into young men and women through discipleship relationships, building up the body of Christ through use of time and treasure and talents, supporting young families who do not have young who have young children as they seek to be faithful, reflecting a life marked by the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God brings fruit through lives of holiness. Does that mean that it's absent of pain? No. It was painful for Elizabeth. You see in verse 25, the statement that she makes, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. God brings fruit through lives of holiness. The second thing I want you to see here this morning, though, is a moment of unbelief. In this interaction between Zechariah and Gabriel, when Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple and tells him that Elizabeth is going to get pregnant and he's going to, she's going to have a son. They're going to name the boy John. This is John the Baptist. He's a very special role in redemptive history. John will prepare the people for the coming Messiah. John will prepare the way for Jesus Christ. We see this outlined for us in verses 13 through 17. In verse 13, I want to make a quick sidebar here because I think this is really important. In verse 13, look at how Gabriel begins the conversation. Do not be afraid. Always the be- when an angel shows up, this is always how they start. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. But then look at this. For your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Zechariah and Elizabeth, were told, were advanced in years. They were past childbearing age. It, it would seem to me, I'm doing a little bit of speculation, but it would seem to me that this is probably a prayer that ceased a while ago. What childless couple prays for kids in their 70s and their 80s? The point is this. Don't give up praying because the answer to your prayers may be beyond a time frame that you can imagine. Okay, back to Zechariah. Zechariah here uh, does not demonstrate faith when Gabriel speaks to him directly. He asks for proof. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. But Gabriel isn't having it. He, I love his response. He just says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you good news. His very presence, the angel's very presence in front of Zechariah is proof that God's word was, has come to Zechariah in this moment. But Zechariah doesn't trust God's word brought by God's messenger. And we know that Zechariah is a righteous man. It says so in verse 6. But the message that Gabriel brought stretched his faith stretched it to to the point even when Zechariah, who walked blamelessly before God, wavered. But here's the grace of God here as well. Notice what the angel doesn't say. Notice what Gabriel doesn't say. He doesn't open his mouth and say, hey, the promise isn't actually for you. Oh, I'm sorry. I got the wrong guy. Rather, The grace of God is evident here in the fact that Zechariah and Elizabeth remain God's chosen servants despite Zechariah's momentary unbelief. 
Zechariah, now we learn his speech is taken from him throughout the pregnancy until John is born, but the promise is not removed. The difficulty of losing his speech is meant to train Zechariah to trust God and the promise made to him through Gabriel. <laughs> what, a, what a merciful God we serve. What a gracious God. What a kind and loving Father that God's promises are not removed when we fail in a moment to trust. When we fail, when our belief falls short. Rather, He gives correction and corrective discipline to train us in righteousness, to grow our faith, to stretch us in ways that we haven't been stretched before. What is... What has God said that you're struggling to believe? What did you read this week in your Bible reading that you struggle to believe? Where does your faith need to be stretched and built? Bring your requests to God. God will graciously correct you. This isn't punitive. It's love. No one thing and no one is so far gone that love cannot call them home. Who sat around your dinner table, your Thanksgiving dinner table this week, you think they're too far. What has God said that you're struggling to believe? You may only see sin and sorrow and thorns and thistles, but He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Zechariah's moment of unbelief turns into an opportunity to grow and to stretch failing faith. Last thing I want you to see here is a glimpse then of the great reversal. The great reversal begins here in Elizabeth's womb. God opens it up and he gives her a son. And look at verse 25 again. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Again, reproach, disappointment. Elizabeth would have experienced a lot of disappointment in her youth. Would this this be the month that she would get pregnant? And month after month would pass, but no pregnancy and people would begin to mutter. She She would cry tears of sorrow and sadness. The effects of the curse of sin would weigh on her shoulders. And in an instant, God reverses it. This curse of sin touches everything in our world. But Jesus' sacrifice is going to reverse it. He was coming into the world and the life in Elizabeth's womb would prepare the way for him. From a desolate, barren place, life would spring. The curse of sin which touched Elizabeth's womb was coming undone. And when new life was suddenly present there, 
It was a look into what God planned to do, not just in the womb of an elderly woman advanced in age, but in human hearts. Where no life resides, life springs forth. Far as the curse is found, the curse of sin touches everything in the world. But the life that Jesus brings would swallow it up. You may wonder about his timing. His timing is perfect. From a couple advanced in age like Zechariah and Elizabeth, and for you, wherever and whenever you are. You may wonder if Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient, if it's enough. You may wonder if it's enough to reverse the curse of sin in a loved one who sat around your Thanksgiving dinner table. It may be that you are wondering if it's enough to reverse the course of events in your marriage. You may be wondering if it's enough to reverse you in your day-to-day struggles. It is. Jesus is enough. And we see it here, a glimpse of the great reversal beginning now. The angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah, your wife advanced in years. Out of the barren, desolate place, life will spring. You will conceive and give birth, and there is no place and no time into which Christ's redeeming power cannot reach. So, what about takeaways from this text? We're moving to the Lord's table this morning as a family. Takeaways. The fruit of our lives comes through holy living unto the Lord. The fruit of our lives for the believer is guaranteed. Through holy living unto the Lord. Every Christian. Every Christian is called. And equipped. For it. The curse touches everything in our world. But believer if you're in Christ. The curse is actively being reversed. In and through you. It's seen clearly in God's people. Just like Elizabeth. God is taking away. Our reproach. He's taking away our disappointment. He's building us up into something beautiful. When we live according to God's word, our lives become the seedbed for fruitfulness. You are called and equipped to bear fruit through holy living unto the Lord. Our lives reflect that God's ways are better than our own. It reflects that to the world who would rather do it their way. And the curse of sin may disrupt our plans, but it has not disrupted God's. He will cause us to be fruitful in ways that we will not expect. And it's because Jesus came to the world to reverse the effects of sin. Out of the barren womb came unexpected, unprecedented fruit. Isaiah 55, 13 says it like this. 
Instead of the thorn, again back to Genesis 3, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. It should make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut out. The fruit of holy living is a name for our God. That others would see God for who he is and give glory to his name for what he has done. Believer, you and I, through lives of holiness, get to put on display to the world that our God is the one who made us, who sustains us, and who brings life. Second takeaway. As we grow in godliness, God builds our faith through correction. There's never a point in your life on this earth where you have arrived. That was true for Zechariah, a man who was righteous and blameless before God. You never get to a place where you arrived. And so even as we grow in godliness, as God sets us apart for specific tasks in our lives and as a church, God builds our faith through correction like he does here for Zechariah. Again, this is good news. It's mercy unto us. God has made promises to us, but sometimes discipline and correction in our lives is necessary to see them clearly. Because we struggle to believe, you struggle to believe, if you spend all afternoon reading through your Bible this afternoon, you will find many things that you struggle in your heart to believe fully. Zechariah experienced that correction from the Lord when he was unable to speak here. Friends, I know what's good for my kids. I'm their dad. I know what's good for them. And one of those things is a good night's sleep. It's good for them if I get a good night's sleep also. But one of them is a good night's sleep. And if my kids get out of bed time and time again at at bedtime, there's discipline. There's correction. Why? Not because it's punitive, but because of tomorrow. Because of all the mercies that God has promised to them tomorrow. Opportunities to learn, to grow, to experience new things, to explore the world. Books to read. Friends to play with. Why would they trade? And this is my job as a dad to help them understand. Why would they trade what is good tomorrow for fleeting pleasures today? Why would they trade their birthright like Esau did to Jacob for a bite of stew? Discipline and correction is needed so they can see the promise of tomorrow more clearly. Friends, discipline and correction for us is needed so that we can see the promise of God more clearly for tomorrow. What's good for you is what God has said is good. God uses even our affliction, even our difficulty in our lives to sharpen our focus. And when his promise comes into clearer view, we trust him more. And when our faith grows, we can see more clearly, like the womb of Elizabeth, there is no corner in all creation that that Christ's redeeming power cannot reach. Last takeaway. We magnify the Lord at Christmas when we proclaim Christ's, his work, redeeming a world full of sin, far as the curse is found. What, what situation 
are you struggling to believe that Christ's curse-reversing, redemptive work can touch? I've already mentioned this, but the holidays bring a lot of these situations for us. A wayward child comes home for a few days. The reminder of a loved one gone too soon. A lean year financially, which means fewer presents under the tree. Christ's redeeming work. Pry open the heart of that wayward child. Christ's redeeming work can give you peace and comfort, consolation when the chair sits empty around the table. Christ's redeeming work can multiply your joy even when the bank account is depleted. Brothers and sisters, beloved, do not go away from this place thinking that Jesus is not actively reversing the curse in the world around you. There is no time and no place into which Christ's redeeming, curse-reversing power cannot reach. May God grow our faith so that we might believe this more fully. So that His name would be made famous among those in this room and our community at large. We're going to turn our focus then to the Lord's table this morning. Because that curse-reversing power comes to the elements that we're going to celebrate this morning and what they signify. Blood that purchased the forgiveness of our sins. A perfect, sinless body broken so that we might be justified before a holy God. The bread and the juice, these are the things that mark the turning point for us. What they signify marks the turning point for us as Christians. The new life that Jesus offers when we're washed and we're joined to Jesus Christ. And it's only possible because He came into the world conceived by the Holy Spirit, born to the Virgin Mary, lived a life of perfect holiness, and died the death that we deserve, even though he was without sin. That's what we're going to celebrate together now. Let me remind you of the feast that we're about to participate in, although it doesn't seem like much of a feast, a small piece of bread and a cup of juice, but this is a feast that foreshadows the feast in new creation, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we will sit around and we will, we will rejoice. That is a promise given to you. If you're struggling to see that promise this morning, this is designed to give you grace to see more fully what God has promised to you in Jesus Christ, an eternity of feasting in his presence. The Apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is something that we do together regularly as a church body. We approach the table um, and look forward to that feast. Um, 
The Apostle Paul's clear, don't approach this table if you're unsure of what it is to be a Christian, if you're unsure of what it means to be redeemed, if you haven't trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Just take this moment and reflect on what we've thought about here this morning together. But for those of you who are in Christ, you're welcome to join us at the table, whether you're a member here at Buffalo City Church or not. Parents, we ask you to, to, to exercise discretion for your children. If they've made a profession of faith, by all means, invite them to participate with you at the table. Um, but if they haven't, use this as an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with them this morning. I'm going to pray. The worship team's going to come up. Worship team, would you grab your elements on the way up? And when I'm finished praying, I will sing. And when you're prepared in your heart to approach the table, do so. Grab the elements and receive the grace of the, of the knowledge that Jesus Christ is returning and that he will snatch us up and bring us home to feast forevermore. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for all that is good here that we see communicated in Scripture. God, we magnify you now at Christmas time. We proclaim Christ's work that redeems us and redeems and is sufficient for redeeming a world full of sin far as the curse is found. God, would we now in these very moments have clear focus through the mercy that you've put on display to us. Through the Lord's table, we have clear focus of the promise that you've made for us in eternity. God, and may we rejoice in the reality that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, took on flesh to dwell among his people, to live among us, to take on the sin that entangled us so quickly, that is so part of our nature, that is so ingrained in who we are, and to turn us into new creation offering forgiveness of our sins. If we have not in this room this morning and have not trusted you fully with our lives, God, would we do that now in these very moments? God, would we as your people be those who are set apart in the world to declare your holy name? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.